Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 23, where we left off last week was after Peter was used of the Lord to raise Tabitha from the dead. And he remained in the coastal town of Joppa, where he was for many days, staying with a man named Simon. And we're told at the end of chapter 9 that Simon was a tanner. He treated animal skins. In the first century, this was a dirty job whose environment carried with it an extremely unpleasant smell. And the Jewish people considered tanning an unclean profession because tanners necessarily handled dead animals in their occupation. Peter was Jewish, yet he is about to be confronted with a very un-Jewish vision from God. And so how fitting that the Lord is already preparing him by having him stay with a tanner. Whether you realize it or not, the Lord positions you to hear his voice. Allow me to read Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now there is a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Verse 17. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up and go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. This is God's word. 
before we fully turn our attention to Peter, we need to cast our gaze on Cornelius. Before we consider Peter's instructions, we'll take a look at how Cornelius is positioned to hear God. How he is positioned to hear God. Caesarea lies on the coast about 30 miles north of Joppa. And though a city within Israel, Caesarea was heavily influenced by Greek culture, boasting a very large Roman population. And this meant that Caesarea contained in abundance all the trappings of Roman religions, including pagan worship, idol worship, temples. Cornelius, he was a member of the Roman military, a centurion. A centurion typically had charge over 100 soldiers, somewhat comparable to a captain today. Now, Cornelius, he was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. But we're told in verse 2 that he was a devout man who feared God. So he was someone that observed the religion and the practices of the Jews around them. He admired their ethics. He embraced the worship of the one true God. Cornelius did not become a full convert to Judaism, but he did identify himself with the Jewish people. This was not completely unheard of for a Roman military commander to do. The centurion, if you remember, who came to Jesus in Luke 7, so loved the Jewish people that he paid for their local synagogue to be built. So it was not unheard of, but it was uncommon. So what did this uh, identification with the God of Israel, what did that look like for Cornelius? It says in verse 2 also, he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So Cornelius, he took notice of the poor, tried to alleviate their sufferings. He also made the Jewish religion personal. He regularly sought God in prayer. There was every indication that he sat aside time to pray three times a day, just as any devout Jew would do. And this practice, it would not have been convenient for a Roman military officer, nor would it have earned him much favor among his peers. But Cornelius, he had already taken steps to open his heart to the Lord. He was seeking truth. And so whether he knew it or not, the words of the Lord in Jeremiah 29, 13 were about to be fulfilled in his life. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Look at verse 3, chapter 10. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. The ninth hour, that's about three o'clock in the afternoon. It was the Jewish afternoon time of prayer. So Cornelius was doing what he typically did at three o'clock in the afternoon. He was praying. And so that you do not think that he just fell asleep and had a dream while trying to pray. We've all been there. The text clearly says he clearly saw in a vision. The Lord had taken special note of Cornelius because he uses his name. The Lord takes note when you seek him as well. He's pleased by any desire to know him more. Cornelius, we're told, was very much alarmed. In other words, he was initially terrified. 
When a spiritual being manifests itself in such a way that he can be seen with physical eyes, this is not fundamentally a pleasant experience. Angels in the Bible, they are not cuddly or cute or effeminate looking men that would maybe adorn a Hallmark card. That is not the biblical pictures that we get. Angels are imposing. They're intimidating. They are heavenly spirits who fight spiritual battles against dark forces, and they serve the Lord's people with a fierce loyalty. That is why they often open with, when they appear to human beings, the phrase, do not fear, because that is your first reaction, to fear what you see. Yet Cornelius, he knew that the Lord was speaking through this vision, because he says, what is it, Lord? And the angel communicates to Cornelius that his prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. The picture here is every sincere prayer and every genuine act of love toward the needy. They rise up as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Because he was not Jewish, Cornelius, he could not go to the temple in Jerusalem. He could not offer sacrifice there. But this Gentile, he could offer prayers and alms. And the Lord of all the earth, the God who is not only limited to the temple, he received those prayers and those alms of this Gentile in lieu of sacrifice. And he was pleased. Your prayers are, are never lost. It's easy. It is easy to get discouraged when we go to the place of prayer day after day and we see no answers. I've said this before. The silence of God is not the absence of God. The Lord noted every prayer that was prayed by Cornelius. And he's about to answer in ways that Cornelius could never have imagined. Your prayers are never lost. Some answers, they come quickly. Many, many answers, they linger. For years on end. And some prayers... Some prayers will only find their ultimate fulfillment from eternity's perspective when we're finally able to see how all the dots connect. And in the same way, the love you show to others as an expression of the love of God never goes unnoticed by God. It did not for Cornelius. It does not for you either. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Why does Paul write that? Because the temptation for us is to grow weary. It's to throw up our hands. It's to say, it doesn't matter. No one appreciates me. God doesn't even seem to notice what I'm doing. But the reaping, it comes in time because this is agricultural imagery. Seeds take time to sprout. And plants take time to grow. The time had come for Cornelius to receive the fruit of so diligently seeking God. And your time will come as well. So the Lord proceeds through the angel to give Cornelius some very specific instructions. He tells him the city, Joppa. He tells him the man, Peter. He tells him where Peter is in Joppa with a tanner named Simon who lives by the sea. So don't miss the, uh, the, the specificity here. God intends for Cornelius to receive all that he has in store for him. God doesn't leave anything to chance. When God speaks into your life, 
He can do so specifically. In fact, if you need a specific answer, you should expect God to give you one. And this does not mean that the Lord will answer you when you think he should. Usually, the Lord surprises us with the timing of his answers. It keeps us trusting in him and not in our own expectations. It also does not mean that God will necessarily answer how you think he should. But never be afraid to seek God for specific answers to prayer. Because God is able to be specific. The problem is, we tend to give up in prayer before we hear what the Lord wants us to hear. Of course, God's instructions to you are always going to be in accordance with His revealed will in His Word. That is your check. This is your check right here to determine whether or not you have heard from God. But do not discount God's ability to lead you to Peter staying with Simon in a house by the sea in Joppa. Cornelius, he doesn't hesitate. He's immediately obedient to what the Lord has called him to do. As a wealthy and an influential man, in many ways, Cornelius, he had trusted servants who were members of his household. And he called two of these to him. He also called a soldier who was his personal attendant. And he told them what had happened. And then he dispatched them on this 30-mile trip south to Joppa. Before we turn to Peter to see what was simultaneously occurring with him, I want to point out something very important. The Lord is preparing Cornelius to hear the gospel from the lips of Peter. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that. Even though the Lord heard Cornelius' prayers, took note of his charity, and even though the Lord looked with favor upon his seeking heart, none of these things were sufficient for Cornelius' salvation. If good works could save a man or a woman, Cornelius would have been saved. If good works and an open heart and kind deeds were sufficient, there was no need for Cornelius to send for Peter to hear a particular message. But the Lord knew there was that need. Because prayer and sincerity and generosity were not good enough. Were not enough to save Cornelius. And they're not enough to save you. No amount of good deeds will deal with the sin problem. Neither prayer nor good works erase past sins. And neither prayer nor good works have the ability to change your heart. Only God can do that. Only God can deal with sins. Only God can change your heart. So this is not a passage about how good of a man Cornelius was. This is not, that is not what this is. This, in fact, let me say this. The Bible is not a book about good people whom we should try really hard to be like. This passage here is, a, is about how even the best among us still need deliverance from sin and self and Satan. And the Bible is a book about very fallen and broken men and women 
who were shown abundant grace by an exceedingly merciful God. The Bible is not primarily a book about good people whose example we should follow. It's a book about a good God. That's the focus of it. But thankfully, Cornelius is on the verge of hearing a life-changing message. But next, let's consider how Peter is positioned to hear God. We saw how Cornelius was positioned to hear God. Now, how is Peter positioned to hear God? While the three men sent by Cornelius are on their way to Joppa, the next day at noon, Peter seeks out a place of prayer. Remember, he's staying with Simon, a tanner by trade. So the Lord has led Peter already to reside with a man whose profession was demeaning among many of their Jewish brethren. But unbeknownst to Peter, this positioning would prepare him for the vision that he is about to receive. Noon, it was not a prescribed time of prayer. And so perhaps Peter, he's just simply trying to get away from the excessive heat in the house or the smells within. And so he climbs up on this flat roof of Simon's house, has a view of the sea, has a, a benefit of the breeze. And as you can imagine, being the time of day it was, as Peter set himself to pray, he also realizes that he's hungry. And so he asks that preparations be made for him to eat. And this is when, verses 10 through 11, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up. In this state of hunger, it is no wonder that the Lord chose to speak to Peter with a vision of potential food. And what Peter saw was like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. We imagine a bed sheet. But that's something that Peter would not necessarily have been familiar with. Being close to the sea, having this view of passing boats, this sheet probably looked more like, like a large sail descending from heaven. And within this sheet were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. So there is this great variety of the animal kingdom represented from livestock to reptiles to insects. And very possibly some of these were animals that, that Peter had never even seen before. This was a strange and a shocking image. But what he saw, what Peter saw, was nothing compared to to what he heard. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Now you folks, you're from Mississippi. You'll try anything once. We don't typically make distinctions between different kinds of meat, clean or unclean, kosher or non-kosher. But many Jewish people still do, up until today. And Peter certainly did. Remember, Peter is an Israelite. All the apostles were Jewish. All of the early church was Jewish. Peter was raised, as any boy in Israel would have been, to follow the dietary laws found in Leviticus chapter 11. There were animals that he ate. Cows, sheep, goats, for example. And there were animals, many more, that he did not. Pigs and lizards being two of those. God had reasons for giving Israel dietary laws. For one, the meat they consumed was healthier over a lifetime. Modern science has, has proven that to be true. 
But another and even more important reason for the kosher laws of Leviticus 11 is that eating differently was a, was a major way that Israel maintained distinction as a nation from the ungodly peoples and nations that were surrounding her. Different eating habits are noticeable. They stand out. And they were still recognized even among the Jewish communities found within Roman cities. This physical distinction represented a spiritual distinction. There's a reason for Leviticus 11. And Jewish dietary laws, habits, they were, they were deeply, deeply embedded in Peter's lifestyle. And that is why he reacts to this command to kill and eat with, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Peter knew this vision and this command came from the Lord, yet they went against everything that he knew to be acceptable as a Jew. Maybe he's thinking, is this a test? Maybe the Lord just wants me to see if I'll refuse to eat when I'm being told to eat. But the voice and the vision made a statement in verse 15 that will prove to be key in understanding what's happening here. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And for the moment, that did not make sense. But so there would be no doubt in Peter's mind that this vision was from the Lord. It's repeated three times. Three times Peter refuses, and three times the voice says, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Put yourself in Peter's place. God is asking him to do something that goes against everything that he's ever practiced. God is asking him to do something that seems to go against his own word in Leviticus 11. As we'll see, this is, this is not the case. God, God never contradicts his own word. The Bible's commands, they never contradict themselves. And when they seem to, what we need to do is we need to study and we need to pray and we need to seek for understanding from God to help us reconcile what appears to be a contradiction. But that understanding for Peter, that, that, that reconciliation, that's still in the future. For the moment, he's confused. And for the moment, he's shocked. And he wonders what the Lord is trying to tell him. Verse 17, Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. If you've never been in that place before, you will be. But I'm sure, I'm sure everyone listening to me here this morning has experienced the Lord saying something that goes against your instincts or that goes against your preconceived notions or your understanding. What God is asking you to do simply does not make sense. If Peter were to eat unclean food, then he would be rejected by other Jews. This is big. Peer pressure. He might even be rejected by Jewish believers in Jesus. He'll probably lose status and approval. He might at the very least be thought of as weird. He would be misunderstood. And he even risked violating his own conscience. 
This did not make sense. And, and Peter is in extreme inner turmoil. The Lord had spoken, that was clear. But Peter did not know how to proceed with what he had heard. He didn't know how to interpret the vision. He was, he was unsettled within. But hear this. God did not put Peter in this position of discomfort in order to leave him there. He did not place Peter in this position to disturb his peace or to leave him perpetually confused. And God does not do that to you either. You see, we, we do not always need to view the confusion that comes into our lives as negative. It's never God's desire that you remain confused about his will, but sometimes God allows confusion to remain for a season. And he does this because he wants you to seek him for clarity. He wants you to wait on his timing to reveal what he is up to. He wants you, and this is very important to hear, to trust him. He wants you to trust him. It's easy to trust God when we think we know what he is up to, right? It's easy to trust him when we are reasonably assured of what the future holds. But it's difficult to trust God when what he reveals is confusing. It's difficult to trust when the vision does not make sense. When it goes against so much of what you thought you understood about God and what you thought you understood about his will. Again, God never contradicts himself. God will never command you to sin. Never. But his ways are higher. Very much higher than ours. As are his thoughts. And that means that you will not always understand what the Lord is up to. And that's okay. It's not comfortable, but it's okay. Faith is like a muscle. Muscles only get bigger when they're exercised. The whole principle behind weightlifting is the resistance the weight offers to your muscles. It's, it's the pushing through in spite of the weight that increases muscle mass. So faith only grows when you are placed in positions of resistance. What I mean is that you don't have to exercise faith if you already have understanding. If everything is clear, then you don't have to exercise faith. It's easy to believe the Lord is up to something good when you understand what he is up to. But God wants you to trust him even when you do not understand. God wants you to trust him when his commands or the Holy Spirit's leading do not make sense. And that's where faith really starts, at the point of resistance. The circumstances are resisting you, but you're choosing to trust God in the darkness, in the confusion. And that is where faith finds the most fertile soil upon which to thrive. We don't always have an immediate answer to our questions. And sometimes you need to wrestle with those questions before God. You need to pray. You need to accept the perplexing situation you have been placed in and trust that the Lord is indeed up to something. We don't like to wait. Shocker. We're impatient. We are the opposite of God in that regard. God is exceedingly patient. 
and he does not mind to wait on his own perfect timing. We should become more like him instead of insisting that God become more like us. The Lord did not immediately reveal his intentions to Peter or the reason for the vision, but he did show Peter the next step. And as Peter is reflecting on the vision, the three men sent by Cornelius, they show up at Simon the Tanner's house. The Lord does not yet give any insight as to what the vision means, but the Holy Spirit does speak clearly about the visitors outside. Look at verse 20. But get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. The Lord does not tell Peter why he needs to go with these men. He just makes clear that these men have been sent for a purpose. In fact, have been sent by God himself. Accompany them without misgivings. And the reason the Spirit said this to Peter is because Peter would have been tempted to stay otherwise. Here are three Gentiles, one a Roman soldier from the major city of Caesarea, showing up in Joppa looking specifically for Peter. Peter was already in a state of perplexity, and he needed assurance from the Lord that, that it will be okay. Spirit-led even to receive these men and then to go with them. The Lord will always show you the next step. He will rarely give you the map and let you see the big picture, but he will show you the next thing to do. You know, much of our anxiety about the future stems from the fact that we don't know how everything is going to work out. And so we don't see all the, the puzzle pieces. We don't see how they're going to come together to make the picture. Most of the time, we don't even see all the pieces. If you're putting together a puzzle and you don't have the, the box top there to reference off of, you'd be in trouble. But if you have somebody who knows how the puzzle needs to be put together and they're standing over your shoulder telling you where each piece is to be placed, then you don't have to see the whole picture now. You just need to follow directions and put the next piece down where you're told that it needs to go. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is not explaining to Peter the vision right now. But he does tell Peter what to do next. And when Peter inquires, you know, why are these visitors here? What's going on? They tell him about Cornelius. They tell him an angel directed Cornelius to send for a man named Peter in Joppa. They, uh, they, they tell Peter that he has a message for Cornelius. And though Peter does not yet grasp what the vision means or why God is leading him to a certain centurion's house, he knows that God is in this thing. That much is clear. And you know what? That's enough. And so the men, they stay the night with Peter at Simon's. The barriers, they, they are slowly falling away. These are Gentiles. These are men that Peter, as a Jew, is not supposed to really be associating with, much less inviting in to stay the night. The walls are getting ready to come down. There are cracks in the foundation of Peter's resistance. We've seen how Cornelius was positioned to hear God. And now we've seen how Peter is positioned to hear God. So the next question, are you positioned to hear God? Are you positioned to hear? Both Cornelius and Peter were in a very different place spiritually. 
Cornelius was seeking a God he did not yet fully know. And Peter was responding to a God he thought that he knew very well. We're all at different places spiritually. But regardless of where you stand with the Lord today, make sure that you are positioned to hear him when he speaks. How do you do that? First of all, cultivate a seeking heart. Cultivate a seeking heart. Cornelius did not grow up under the teaching of Scripture. He was a stranger to the God of Israel. The the ways of the Jewish people around him, they were abnormal to him. Yet he sensed that they worshipped the true God. And he desired to do that as well. So Cornelius did what he could to make that a reality. He feared God. He prayed to God. He gave to the poor signs of serving God. And I'm sure he tried to learn the Scriptures along the way. But he still lacked something crucial. Cornelius did not yet know the Jewish Messiah. But because his heart was set on seeking God, the Lord is preparing the way for him to hear the life-changing message of the gospel. That is still yet to come. Cornelius did not earn credit with God through his seeking or through his good works. But he did receive the favor of God. God noticed Cornelius because Cornelius possessed a seeking heart. God notices the seeking heart of the non-Christian. And the Lord takes that into account. He doesn't forgive your sins because you're trying hard. But God does allow himself to be found by those who desire to know truth. Cornelius was positioned to hear because he cultivated a seeking heart. And that principle applies to Christians and non-Christians alike. If you seek God diligently, he will reveal more and more of himself and of his ways to you. Cultivate a seeking heart. Secondly, allow yourself to be surprised. Allow yourself to be surprised. Peter set aside time to pray. He wanted to hear from the Lord. The place of listening uh, prayer is the place to hear God. But don't go to God. Do not go to God with your preconceived ideas. Do not go to the Lord expecting Him to tell you what you want to hear. Pray and study And listen in order to hear God say what he needs to say. This means allow yourself room to be surprised. Peter's confusion was not a bad thing. And it would only prove to be temporary. God does not desire that you always be confused. He wants you to wait on him through The confusion. Peter did not throw up his hands in discouragement. It says he was reflecting on the vision. He turned it over and over in his mind. He held his thoughts before the Lord, looking at the vision from every angle, seeking, asking for understanding. And the Lord gave that to him, but not all at once. It came gradually. The only thing that Peter needed to know at this point was to go with three men and speak a message to their boss. And that was enough for now. 
So trust God in the waiting. Don't insist to know everything all at once. Trust God in the confusion. Trusting when trusting is hard is how faith grows. And I'm preaching to myself this morning as well. Don't worry. And finally, realize this. Realize this. The darkest, most confusing moment in human history was the very culmination of God's eternal plan. Peter, along with the other disciples, they had gazed upon their dying teacher and Lord, nailed to a cross, and wondered why this was happening. It was confusing, to say the least. It did not make sense. Yet everything had led to that moment. That much was clear. It just did not seem like God could make sense out of such, out of such darkness and out of such confusion. How could the crucifixion ever make sense? The Son of God, the Son of God dying as a mere man. Yet, at no other point in human history, up until then or since, was God preparing to speak as clearly as He did when Jesus Christ took upon Himself your punishment for your sins. And that did not immediately connect with the disciples. Jesus was bearing the judgment of your sins and mine in his body. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died that death to pay the price that we owe. It did all become clear, but not immediately. The resurrection, that's what brought some clarity. God raised Jesus from the dead. God accepted the sacrifice made on your behalf. Jesus alone, not Cornelius, not Peter, not you, not me. Jesus alone earned God's approval by living a perfect life. And that's why his death was accepted on behalf of all of us who have not lived that perfect life, on behalf of sinners, as a payment. What was so confusing about the resurrection on that Friday, about the crucifixion on that Friday, is made clear through the resurrection. Jesus died to give you life, his life. And if you've never received that life, call upon him in faith today. If you're unsure at this moment whether or not you've ever received that life, then make sure that you know, that you know that you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ because he alone died to bear the judgment you deserve and the wrath of God on your behalf. And he alone rose from the dead to give you his life. Offered in your place, lived through you so that you can be reconciled to God. And if you're feeling conviction this morning, feeling the, the weight of judgment, feeling the guilt for sin, feeling condemnation, don't ignore that. Don't push that away. I don't know where you stand before the Lord. 
Maybe if you're feeling those things, guilt, condemnation, conviction, it's because that burden has never been lifted because you've never rolled that burden over onto Jesus Christ by an act of faith, by a one-time act of simple faith. Or maybe on the other hand, you're feeling those things because Satan is putting guilt and condemnation and conviction upon you, which Jesus has already borne on your behalf, and you've already confessed the name of the Lord Jesus, and you know you've already rolled that burden over, and you're allowing him to, Satan to roll it back on top of you. But wherever you might be at, make sure you know where you're at. Make sure you know which side of the cross and the resurrection that you are standing on. There's no middle ground. You will pay for your own sins eternally. Or you have trusted that Jesus paid the price of those sins for you. There's nowhere in between. You either pay for them or you believe that Jesus paid for them on your behalf. And if you know this morning that you've been rescued from eternal death, call upon the name of Jesus again. Not for salvation. Salvation is a one-time event in a person's life. It's a new beginning. It's a new life. It's a demarcation from the old. It's the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But if you know that you've stepped into the kingdom of, dark, a kingdom of light because the mercy and the grace of God, call upon the name of Jesus again. Renew that call. Asking him to speak into the confusion and make clear the next step that he would have you take. Because he will surely do that. And that's what we see from our text this morning. And more than that, more than even God's willingness to clear the confusion for you, God has placed you in a position that he will do so. Do you recognize that? Are you listening for his voice? Are you cultivating a seeking heart? Are you ready to be surprised with what God might say? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to search our hearts this morning. We ask that you would show us individually where we stand before you, Father. Whether or not each person in this room has, has made that decision to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to be rescued from the domain of darkness and sin and death. And Lord, pray that if that's not the case, that today would be a day of salvation. And for those of us, Father, who have, who have made that decision, Lord, whatever confusion we might be placing, help us, might be experiencing, help us to help us to trust you, Father. Help us to know that, that where you have us, where you've positioned us, is where we need to be. Where we can trust you and hold on to you through it until you make it clear. Show us the next steps, Father. And give us grace to take them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning.